Welcome to Changing Reels, a podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time. Uh, my name is Courtney Small of Cinema Access and the radio show Frameline. I'm joined today by my co-host, the wonderful film critic Kristen Lopez, whose views on films you've probably heard on podcasts such as Citizen Dame or read in numerous publications including Variety, Forbes, The Hollywood Reporter, and RogerEbert.com, to name a few. Kristen, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. For those of you who don't know, Kristen has officially moved to La La Land, is it? I, I am in Los Angeles now, yes. I, I see that you're hanging out with up-and-coming directors like Alfonso Cuaron and uh, Patty Jenkins. Yeah, it's been, it's been, actually, aside from the Alfonso Cuaron thing, it's been pretty normal. My Patty Jenkins thing was, was over the phone, so we didn't get to, to mingle, but yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. Oh, that's good. I'm glad everything's going well so far. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping. It's been raining, but I'm used to that, so. You know what, right now I will take the rain, because we've had like a week straight of minus weather, to the point where it's fe- feeling like minus 25 and minus 30, so any bit of warmth, I will just have to live through you. <laughs> uh, we like to start off each episode by highlighting one short film that you can watch online for free. Our short film today is Pran Moi, or the English t- title Take Me, by Canadian directors Anais Barbeau-Lavalette and André Turpin, the latter of whom you'll probably know from his cinematography work on films such as Xavier Dolan's Mommy, Denis Villeneuve's Ensandis, just to name a few. The short observes a nurse at a center for the disabled who is asked to provide assistance to a young couple in the intimacy room. Kirsten, do you want to start off with your thoughts on this short? I have very mixed feelings about this one because, so proper context, if you don't know and you haven't heard this podcast before, uh, I am a disabled critic. So I come from a lot of discussions about disability as my big thing being that we're not presented as sexual beings, which I had to applaud this for actually showing to people who are obviously disabled performers, which, again, very, very rare and almost non-existent in Hollywood, actually engaging in sex, which I thought was was great. But I felt that there were still some big issues. I'm going to assume that both the director and writer are not disabled themselves. I can speak for Mr. Turpin and say no. I don't know about Barbara Lavalette. So I'll make that irrelevant for the moment. My biggest issue is that, yes, they are sexual beings, but it is filtered through a very clinical hospital setting. There is nothing romantic about this. There is nothing particularly engaging about it. It is no presented no different to me than like a conjugal visit in a prison. And I felt that was a bit of a disservice to these characters that obviously love each other a great deal. You find out that they're married, which I would love to know how um, their marriage works, considering that in the U.S., at least, if you collect disability, you can't get married and actually, like, live on the money they give you. So... I'm going to just chalk it up to a cultural thing. Maybe it's different where they film this. But I, I didn't really care that it was filtered through a hospital. That, like, oh, these two people have to have help to, to have sex, um, specifically from, like, a nurse. I thought I thought that was a little cliche, and it, it's why I wondered if maybe the, the people who were writing it were not disabled.
old. And it is still filtered through the lens of an able-bodied person because it's through the story, uh, through the eyes of the nurse, who is very uncomfortable. And at one point you see a, a scene where he talks about, like, taking things up with the union or whatever because he feels that it's not his job to do certain things, which I was, again, kind of like, did you not know your job description when you took the, you know, gig? Um, so, I mean, I had issues with it that just kind of felt like Disability 101, like, oh, these people, yes, they can have sex, but we're going to make it just as, like, unsexy as can be. So I, I was a little, like, push and pull for me. And I, I completely get that. Even when picking the short, I wasn't quite sure if this was the one to go with, but I felt that it, it kind of fits with what we're going to be discussing with our, our feature film and especially how they're both kind of told from a, a caregiver's standpoint. I would say somewhat, yes. It is, it is similar, but I will give this the edge purely because it has disabled performers and it actually shows them as like human beings. Yes. <laughs> you it's just oh we'll get there we'll get there <laughs> yes and and, and, that, and that's also why i i chose this specific one because when researching the various shorts that talk about disability my original thought was to go with a another canadian short called picture this but it was a documentary and it's again talking about disabled individuals who are sexually active and you know how they go about getting dates and also using assistance to help get them ready and stuff like that but then i thought well every time there's a, a film about disability and sexuality it's always a documentary so i went searching for just a narrative short and every short that i came up with was all from a young male's perspective again we're going to be getting into this when we dive into uh, me before you our feature film of the day and they all kind of followed the same pattern where there was like at least some negative or dark aspect to the story so yeah it's very funny the disability narratives either fall into like we're primitive species that are being studied or or where it's filtered through like you said and i'm so glad you pointed it out which is like the white male lens yeah this is just fact like do simple research and th those are the type of films you're going to get and i like that this one we got to see a couple being intimate um yes it is somewhat clinical especially when it comes to like the close-ups and whatnot but i still got the sense that at least from these performers it felt more like a real couple compared to everything else i've seen it's definitely the most progressive i mm -hmm. think when it talks about disabled sexuality and the fact that it even shows it too which is an anthem you know in, in mainstream cinema so I definitely, I think if the movie or the short had just been from their perspective, I think that it could have done a whole lot. Going back and forth and showing this guy as he's kind of grappling with his own, I'm going to say repulsion at certain aspects of his job, was a little hard for me to, to deal with because I didn't really care about that. I was like, I've seen this story before. Yeah, and it seemed, for at least for a brief moment, his repulsion also seemed to border on a homophobia. Yes. Because him helping get the couple in the room and set up was not a problem. It was when, when he was asked to physically use his hands to help bring the two genitals together. That's when he seemed like, all right, I'm out of here. And I was like, well, but again, as you said, that's that's your job. You should you should know that. The thing too that I think these movies, it's a very specific why they do what they do, and it's very specific why they filter it through an able-bodied lens and we can talk about that when we talk about me before you but i really really wanted the perspective to be on the couple because 
as someone who has grown up disabled, the last thing we want to do is ask people to help us in our most intimate moments, and whether that's having sex or going to the bathroom or showering or anything like that. And so to make it about this guy who has to go to, you know, his boss and be like, I'm disgusted with what I have to do, instead of focusing on the couple who are probably incredibly, you know, I, I mean, I would think that would have to be incredibly uncomfortable to ask somebody. It's not like it's something you want to do. I felt that it was really just, it shouldn't have been with him. It should have been with them and how they felt about having to ask that guy to do that. Like that, I think, is the more interesting story. Yes, and I, I agree. And that's a big complaint I had was I wish I there was a bit more with that couple because yeah. we just, we see them being intimate. You see them after, during and afterwards and kind of giggly, happy, in euphoria. And I was like, I want to know more about them because even when the guy was at, towards the end of the film when the caretaker realizes that these couple, they're just like everyone else and I need to change my view. Again, it, his turnaround comes very quickly, but it, it, it is a short film. And as he's walking and looking at all the other individuals in, in the the homes they're all just doing regular things listen to music reading the paper and it's almost like he, the light bulb goes off and goes oh they're they're just like me you know but without the i guess grandizing that you would get in a lot of feature films i did want to throw out before before we transition to a movie i think we have a lot of thoughts on i i did want you brought a background and i wanted to know more about where we were like that's my biggest problem with with setting this up in a hospital is that there's this expectation that that's where the disabled quote-unquote live and the end of the short shows all these different people of all these different ages and disabilities living in this area and i was again kind of taken aback like i was like is this a hospital is this some sort of assisted living place i was really turned off by the concept of like this is some sort of enclave for the disabled this is where they live because it it really puts the stigma on the idea that the disabled are out of sight out of mind that they live in these you know quote-unquote communities whereas all a lot of us as much as we can i mean i live in a regular house so i was i wanted some more background because if you're gonna make that generalization there needs to be context for it yes and you know what it's funny because i took it as they were at a assisted living facility but again not having the unique perspective that you have i just took it as all right you know there's there's probably a few places that have assisted living facilities and whatnot. But when you think about it, in cinema, you don't really get to see disability out in the open that often. So live in multi-million dollar castles? Or outside, we... of, outside of multi-million dollar castles that only a few have, or, or as you said, hospitals. And yeah. it, it didn't even dawn on me because I just thought, okay, it's just probably some assisted living facility. But yeah, that you that is a very good point. Yeah, I wish I didn't have to make it. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I'm be saying this whole episode. Yes. I shouldn't have to say these things, but... <laughs> I commend this film for, for showing sexuality in a way that we, we rarely get to see on film, even if it is a bit clinical. Um, yeah. The individuals that are engaging. And, and also, I like that they got actors who are disabled to play these roles and play in a natural way. Yeah, I just, I wish that we weren't seeing it in you know, short films. I want to see it in mainstream cinema, but we'll get to that. <laughs> yes, you know what? We're going to take a moment to change the reels and then we'll come back with our feature film of the day. <laughs> 
Our main film for today is the 2016 film Me Before You, directed by Thea Shara. The film follows a young woman who takes a job as a caregiver and forms an unlikely bond with paralyzed man she's working for. Now, Kristen, you had picked this film to discuss and not for our usual reasons because normally we like to promote different facets of representation in cinema try and bring out the positive aspects but you wanted to talk about the ways that cinema gets disability wrong and this was my first time watching the film so sorry (laughs) it was good because i i've read a lot of your stuff so i kind of knew your thought process i was like all right well kristen picked this film i should really be thinking of all the reasons why she picked this film film but I actually think this is a perfect example because this is one of those films that I find is rather deceptive in how it approaches the whole topic of disability and we can dive into that a bit more so I'll let you start off with with your thoughts on this film so I pick well I'll give some context on why I picked this I I picked this as I as I told you there aren't a perfect perfect examples of disability in cinema i get asked a lot what movies do you recommend if you want to see a great depiction of disability and i don't have any i have some but a lot of them do come with some pretty heavy caveats Um, i i thought about doing the best years of our lives which remains one of the best and i use best loosely depictions of disability in cinema but it's three hours and we we do have it on our our list to, to talk about um and it's not really the disability is is a good part but it's not the focus of the film and and i think a lot of people go see these movies they go see this they go see the upside and i think it's important to look at what hollywood promotes and pretty much remind you why it's wrong and why you should be more active viewers in what you're consuming and so that's why i picked this because I think it's a great example of what people who are disabled have had to deal with in terms of narratives for a long time. And and Me Before You is one of the more egregious examples. I saw this at a press screening. I went because my argument is, is I can't complain about a movie if I've never seen it. And so I went and I knew I was in for something when they handed me Me Before You branded tissue. It's like, oh God, this is it. Um, I, it full disclosure, I went hard. So I read Jojo Moyes' book. She wrote the script for this. She has no business writing words. I don't care in what format they are. But but I read her book too, so I, I knew what I was in for when I watched this movie. And I watched it, and I, I came out of the theater, and literally it was like watching the Red Sea part, because everybody was looking at me as I was the only person who was physically disabled in the audience. <laughs> and, and this elderly gentleman comes up to me and says, well, what'd you think of the movie? And I didn't really want to get on my soapbox right in the middle of the movie theater. And so I just looked at him and I said, well, I didn't like it very much, but I, I knew I wouldn't like it. And he's like, well, I don't understand why you wouldn't like it because we're all going to be disabled someday. Wow. I was like, see, this is the problem. This is why you don't watch these movies because they tell you to say stupid shit like that. I'm okay. So I need to rein it in. Um, so me before you, I, I find, I knew it was going to offend me. And the problem is, is that a lot of people watch these movies and they get what it's selling, which is pity porn. This is for able-bodied people to watch and feel good about themselves because they are not struck down by the horrible thing that is known as disability. But it really promotes some really dangerous stereotypes that we're still continuing to see in cinema 
you know, we talked a little bit about it, but the concept that we're all independently wealthy, the fact that we are all white men with six pack abs, apparently, <laughs> and and really the fact that we're all bitter and we want to kill ourselves, and and we have a lot of money to go do that too. And so, so I, I mean, it, it hits on every narrative problem that you get when it comes to disability. So I knew it would make me mad, and boy, was I not disappointed. Yeah, it's I don't even know where to start with this film. So I'll say that okay, let me. <laughs> start with the deceptive aspect of it because watching this film you have Leo Kirk as Lou and she's the typical rom-com kind of charming woman that's with the wrong guy who doesn't really care about her at all what have you and the film starts off almost like a beauty and the beast narrative but in this case the beast isn't disfigured or turned into a physical monster he just got into a car accident and is paralyzed. The bad beard. Yeah, he, he does grow a bad beard to show how um, he's let himself go in the despair. But yet he's still super good looking, even by scruffy guy standards. If you're talking like traditional Hollywood romant- rom-com leading men. I cannot stress this enough. He owns a castle, okay? So I don't really think there's a lot of women and men who would be like, you know, you're in a wheelchair and you got a bad beard. I don't think I could go out with you. <laughs> And the film makes a point at the very beginning to show him upwardly mobile. You know, he was yeah. about to take a motorcycle because apparently he, he rides a motorcycle. He's just that type of dude. Crazy rich problems. Yeah, but it's raining. And sure enough, he goes trying to hail a cab and gets hit by a motorcycle. It's like, oh, okay, fine. You move on. The, f- the film proceeds. You see that he's disabled. He's disgruntled she slowly starts to crack away at him and then they have to have a a two-minute segment where she's watching an online video of him basically being the james bond of the uk you know the suave athlete who's good looking and got the guys play pranks on him but he's still ripped i was like wait why do you keep showing me and emphasizing the good times he had instead of actually emphasizing the good times that they can have together like i thought i went in thinking that this was supposed to be a romantic comedy but i didn't really get the sense of romance because i didn't find him charming or interesting interesting at all it was i'm disabled woe was me okay you're a pretty girl maybe it's not that bad but i'm still disabled and i can't live i'm like that doesn't make any sense <laughs> it does make sense if you watch as many disabled narratives as i do because And I say this about every one of them. Go back and watch a couple of these movies. They all do the same thing. You go back and watch Theory of Everything. You go back and watch, you know, any of those movies that are big Hollywood productions. You will see, even in the Theory of Everything, the movie starts with Eddie Redmayne upwardly mobile because disability is this grand mystery that the, you poor, stupid, able-bodied people, this is how Hollywood thinks of you, not me. And, you know, you guys won't understand unless you see, you won't relate Unless you see that this guy was just like you. Uh, So that's why you will either see these movies where the character is disabled late in life, and it's almost always men, and there's usually an able-bodied person who, who acts as the surrogate, the surrogate legs. Um, the surrogate life. I think in the upside, they even call Kevin Hart's character a life auxiliary because, wow. you know, we have lives. So we need backup. We need a backup guy who can live life for us. 
And and that's why you see Will, the Sam Claflin character, being awesome. Because how horrible would it be if you were just like this great entitled white guy who has everything and then you were struck down with this ability? I was I was sitting there thinking like if you were a woman of color watching this, you'd be like I I mean it's offensive to numerous groups, not just the disabled, because honestly Will wouldn't have that life if he wasn't a white guy. Like, you would never see the story told with Michael B. Jordan playing this guy. Like, it just wouldn't happen. No, that's true. And it's funny when you were talking about how the man at your screening was basically telling you, well, this is how how life is, because it reminded me of a conversation I had with my wife about race in cinema, especially for 2018. Because 2018, there was a lot of films that offer interesting and unique perspectives on being black in America or being being black in the UK and the ups and downs, the romance, the tragedy. But the ones that people seem to tell me, or in in this case, my wife, were the ones that were important, were the ones where it was dealt from a predominantly white perspective. So my wife hadn't seen Green Book, but she knew that I wasn't that big on it. And she was talking to a co-worker about it because a co-worker had seen it and she loved it. And she said, well, you know, my husband had some issues with the fact that it's told from Viggo Mark's perspective. And her co-worker said, well, Mahershala Ali's character, well, he was a recluse, so who else would tell his story? It's like, but that whole story of him being a recluse was not true like you know but just the the fact that well the movie said it was so so it must be that way and i i that irks me a lot with films about race and i can easily see why that work anyone when it comes to disability because as you said it's come it's completely like that and i find with this film lou's agency or i would say lack thereof because for me lou i actually liked amelia clark playing this role maybe because i've only seen her in game of thrones so it was nice to see her not be the strong woman with the dragon and just kind of be goofy and klutzy but the whole time I felt like her life was governed by the men in her life her boyfriend kind of telling her what to do and not really caring about her and then her whole purpose for the second half is to make Will's life better by showing him that he can do all these things and yeah there's going to be some ups and downs there's going to be some challenges but you can still live life only to have him basically kiss her and say you're great baby but not great enough I'm gonna die like it just I will say the Lou character I love how Jojo Moyes changes her but doesn't change Sam Claflin's character at all Mm -hmm. because in in the book you find out that Lou is I wanted to say they put they they situate her in the book is like mentally impaired because she dresses like she's six and she has like pigtails that are askew and like they present quirky as like mentally challenged so So she's not even the manic pixie girl she's just like a whole other level so like Jojo Moyes doesn't know what quirky is for starters but you you find out that she is not really interested in moving out of her parents house because she was assaulted so she much like Sam Claflin's will is damaged so I love how we put rape and disability on the same spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that part is removed from this film because I guess Jojo Moyes realized that like that's offensive but not anything else in this movie. And and you are very correct. Like most of these movies, something like Breathe with Andrew Garfield or again, The Theory of Everything does go through this and they're, why are they all brunette white women? <laughs> they always have this, you know, the girl. And I, I will say it's very interesting to compare relationships here heterosexual female gaze versus something like when a disabled woman is at the center of a film which is very rare but i will throw out an example shape of water relationship in that film Mm -hmm. 
because Louisa is reminding Will throughout this movie, like, you know, I don't care that you're disabled. I'm going to use the term, and I'm going to show you how it's applied in two very different contexts. I don't mind that you're disabled. Now, in this movie, it's like Louisa is like, oh, baby, I don't mind that you you have this disability. Like, I, I want you to see you as I see you, which is not less of a person. And that's very patronizing, but it's meant to be positive. Now, you apply that same term to the shape of water, okay? When Michael Shannon tells what's-her-face from the shape of water, whose name I can't remember. Oh, um, Sally Hawkins' character? or Yeah, Eliza, that's what it was. When he tells her, I don't mind that you're disabled, it's a threat. In these movies, you have either rape victim, future rape victim, or you have, you know, romantic dream man. And it's, it's not really anything that's changed, which I find, it's belittling to both groups. But the problem here is that Lou, you're right, doesn't have any agency. She's dating Neville Longbottom from Harry Potter. Yes, that's where he was from. Okay. He's like, I'm training for a triathlon. I don't have time for you or whatever. And so when she gets the opportunity to to be the caretaker for Will, it's exactly what she said. It's the beauty and the beast principle. He's showing her a different world that doesn't have boundaries of class or money. And, you know, she's able to take trips. They go to all these different exotic locations. You know, he is access to a better life. And my problem with that becomes, because I believe movies or codes teach us how to deal and interact with people that are different from us. It reminds able-bodied audiences that, Disabled people need care, and they definitely have money. I, my friend and I joke all the time about going to the movies together, because when we went and saw The Upside, she said it to me there. She was like, you know, Kristen, I'm only friends with you so that you can give me that $50,000 that I know you're hiding. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I know, I'm, you're just waiting for the right time to earn that money. And that's really my problem, is that these movies are supposed to act as fantasies for the able-bodied in a world that doesn't have class or financial barriers. And The Upside does this as well. And it plays with race a little bit in that movie, too. But but really, if you are an actual disability, you know, disabled person, watching Will live in a castle that is ADA compliant, like he can get from A to B, he has a car, he can get anywhere he wants, he doesn't have financial barriers, he seemingly has narrative medical problems, but he doesn't have medications or, you know, he's not, he doesn't have to deal with insurance. You know, the real world things that we deal with every day, it places a fantasy for us but it's an offensive fantasy because it's selling you this concept that disabled people have nothing to complain about. We are whiners, you know, if we complain because the movie tells you that we have no problem. Yeah, that's true. And I watched the special features for this film on the DVD and they talked to Jojo Moyes about her inception for, for writing this book. And she stated that she had heard a news story about a rugby player who became quadriplegic and was fighting to get assisted suicide. And she said, like, that little thing kind of kept eating away at her. And then she finally wrote the book and it went on to sell, like, five million copies or what have you. And I said, okay, but at no point between A and B did you actually think about what that rugby player's life would be like on the regular. And as you pointed out, in this world, there is no boundaries for wealth, but class seems to come into play when Lou wants to take him to, like, a, a fancy club restaurant or something then that's when oh it's it's 
shameful to be disabled because they can't seat you there. But everything else is is just wonderful by, by comparison. And when he is, I think he has like what maybe two scenes of actual stress where you actually see oh you know there is some physical complications and certain things that he needs like you know he needs to get fluid drained and but even that is treated like a a blink and you miss it kind of thing because again they want to sell this perfect romance of this i guess meager woman in comparison who falls for this prince who just happens to be in a wheelchair but the prince doesn't want to live but that's okay because he will leave her money so she can fulfill her dreams and at no point did i feel like i got anything out of the actual disability aspects instead of it just being a plot device to get them from meeting to his death right and and you bring up the fact that at the end she benefits she benefits from his death and you can say all you want oh well he benefits from from dying because he's no longer in pain the movie doesn't situate a world where he is in pain there are narratively convenient medical problems but he is not presented because the movie isn't told through his eyes so you don't get anything more than just like i'm disabled equals death but that's all it is it is exactly my problem with million dollar baby which is that she's paralyzed for all of 10 seconds and it immediately becomes clint eastwood sitting on a pillow on her face smothering her to death oh Kristen. No, no, it's not spoiling it. I had never thought of Million Dollar Baby in that way. Now that you've said it, and my mind's replaying those final moments, I was like, oh, that film, yes, you're right. Wonderful documentary out called Cinemability, which if you get a chance, you should all see it, it's great, that talks about Million Dollar Baby and that sequence and how they were like, if that was an actual person, because there is immense depression felt by people who are disabled late in life, but it comes, you know, many of the people who were interviewed said, put that person in counseling, have them, you know, actually start to navigate their life and adapt, and that depression usually goes away. You know, they're like, if everybody just started offing themselves 10 seconds after they were disabled, there'd be a lot less people in the world. And that's that's my problem, is that this is a guy that obviously needed some therapy, but there's no presentation of that. You know, it's just, I'm disabled, I need to die. And even when he dies, it's beautiful. It's beautiful and it's expensive looking. Yes, like, yes, very expensive looking and when i went he goes to switzerland to do it and i looked at my friend while we were watching this movie in the theater and i said well jesus if that's where i get to die like what have i been doing all this time (laughs) i should i should save up and and we do if you look at the debates with assisted suicide in this country and how hard it is for cancer patients to go you know, have assisted suicide to to deal with cancer pain. Watching him jet set off to Switzerland to a chateau to go kill himself. Like, I felt bad for everybody that has cancer or like a a real terminal. I by no stretch of the imagination think that my life is that bad compared to people with real terminal illnesses who probably would feel like they would benefit from that. So I, I was like, it does a disservice all the way around. Thinking about his death and especially in relation to them on the beach them going to the opera and all this stuff because apparently her experiencing all that culture also benefits her life because I think one of the things that opened up his curmudgeon heart was the fact that she sat and watched a subtitle film (laughs) just little things like that but when he was giving his speech which he was pleading for him to to go on living and realize that life is not bad and he was and he said something to the effect of like the things that i want to do to you 
that I can't. And oh, if you knew. And it's like, okay, so this is because you now can't have sex? Because this film starts off with Lou, when she's taking the job, talking about how disabled people can still get it on. So I couldn't figure out, like, even when they had that romantic kiss, do the little soft fade, it's like, are, oh, are they going to actually get romantic? Oh, no, no, they're going to save that for lit. No, he went and died. Okay, he died because... I will throw out my answer to that to that question. And if there are young listeners, cover your ears. So, as someone who's read numerous things about quadriplegics who have sex, what I'm hearing is that he's an obviously selfish, entitled white guy, okay? Because trust me, there are ways. You might not benefit, but your partner will. So if you're about to go kill yourself because you're against that, then you know what? Maybe you should die. <laughs> and they say that the human brain is the most robust and powerful sex organ. I'm pretty sure he would have had a good time and found ways to do things. Like, it just, I don't know, like, making that, like, the, the big point. You know, he can't physically love her the way he wants to. It's like, that makes no sense. You say it, he can't get laid, and that's why he's gonna go kill himself. I don't know, maybe because I have an issue also with romances that use death as the ultimate sign of love. Like, I'm sorry, I've never liked Romeo and Juliet. I'm going to say it right now. No matter how many times I've read it and seen the various incarnations, I just don't like that story. And for this film to try and sell me that they had the ultimate love affair, which was consisted of her giving 95% of the effort and him giving 5%, and by 5%, I mean opening his wallet. This film did not even sell me as a as a romantic comedy or romantic drama i don't i don't know and it, it made money and i can see why it made money because it's peddling the beauty and the beast narrative again i haven't read the book but judging from what you say i don't understand why that book was popular either i can tell you why i think it's popular this movie really harkens back to the woman's film if anybody remembers films of like the 40s they called them weepies melodrama for women mm -hmm. and, and this is very much reminiscent of that only where you usually had the asexual older benefactor in those movies that has been transitioned into the asexual disabled man so see ladies this is a man that isn't asking for anything of you sexually you know he's not he, he and even if he was he can't do anything he's non-threatening he is the picture perfect embodiment of a man that will give you money and give you culture and you don't have to screw him and you don't have to exploit yourself. And in the 40s, that gave women a sense of power because there was equal footing, because you were dealing with class and you were dealing with wealth. But when you introduce disability into that narrative, it does feel like there's exploitation. But not of you, the woman. You are exploiting the disabled guy. And that's that's really the problem. Like, Lou never once confronts her own ableism because there's a scene where she takes him out to a racetrack. Oh, yeah. And she didn't bother to look and see if the racetrack was handicap accessible. And so his, like, wheelchair gets stuck in the mud, which I was a little like, why the hell would you take him on, like, the rainiest day in the world to a racetrack? What would be the benefit of that? And all these things. And instead of asking him what he wanted to do, for starters, she's just like, oh, you're grumpy Gus. I'm going to take you out. And, and so, of course, everything goes wrong, which he could have told her that if she had bothered to ask. But even instead of asking him when they do get stuck what he should 
she should do. She's soliciting people to help them. And again, there's an embarrassment factor for him that we don't see. He's just presented as a dick. But I'm, I mean, my mother and my brothers know that like, if there's a situation, they will ask me like, do you want me to ask somebody to help? Because you just don't do that because there is that in embarrassment factor. You're asking some stranger to help you and you don't want to look like a bird and you don't want to look weak. But the movie doesn't even confront that because Jojo Moyes genuinely doesn't know what ableism is. Thinking back when Lou decided that she wanted to do all these fun things like take him to track and opera and what have you, his parents treat it almost like a lark. You know, the dad's like, ah, sure, if it'll get him out the house, I don't think it will, but ha ha ha, we'll see what happens. And yeah, at no point do they actually consult him. And granted, he's grumpy, like 70% of this film. But yeah, moments like that, she, she doesn't bothered us even when they had the incident at the the restaurant and he's just saying okay well you know what i've, I've been embarrassed enough today with this being stuck in the mud now the restaurant she's just being persistent because you know she has to stand up for him and be be the voice of of reasons the disability is almost non-existent except for the fact that it's terrible right right and that's exactly how these narratives present things you know you're either overcoming or you're dying you know, there is no middle ground. I mean, I give the edge to something like Stronger, which, yes, still follows the same techniques of 90% of the time these movies are based on true stories. If they live, they're based on true stories. If they die, they're usually fictional. But even something like Stronger really does take the time to look at middle class disability. It doesn't do it perfect, but it does take the time to look at it. And and my problem with something like Me Before You is just the concept of this movie presenting Will as if he's entitled. Yes, he is entitled because he grew up a wealthy white guy. But the movie equates his entitlement with being disabled. You know, how dare you not appreciate this beautiful life you have? And I was sitting there thinking, like, yeah, I would say that, too, if I thought that there was a chance a disabled person was living that life, but they are not. And that's that's the thing. You know, I, I think the saddest thing is that we don't tell disability narratives about average disabled people because we're just not that interesting. And that that should be more than enough, because there are plenty of like mediocre, able-bodied people who get who get films based on them every day. Um but I think that that would do a lot more than what these movies do. But yet there's nothing romantic, you know, with a capital R. There's nothing fantastical about that. You know, we want to see, you know, the able-bodied girl get all her money and get to go out. There's a sequel book. Jojo Moyes wrote a book after this that follows Lou as she's, like, spending Will's money. And I, I didn't read it, but I was kind of thinking... I should write my own rebuttal book yes. <laughs> to where I'm just like the person, the disabled person who hears Lou's story. And she's like, and then he left me all this money so that I could be like, are you, are you serious? Some guy left you all this money and you think that's romantic? Like, bitch, give me some because I would love to benefit from being disabled because I'm not. <laughs> yeah, and, and I wonder if in that story, in the sequel, if she falls in love with an able-bodied individual or is, does she fall for another disabled individual? Um, if she falls for another disabled individual, I'm assuming she just has a type. Mm-hmm. You know, some people... 
some people actively look for disabled people to date. I mean, I'm not judging. But hold on, I can tell you, actually, the book is called After You. This came out in 2015. And, oh, there's actually a second sequel that was published just last year. Wow. Uh, so this is a franchise. Um, so essentially, she goes and finds out that Sam Claflin's character had a secret daughter. What the hell? From Oh, probably from his Playboy days. Because when the film starts off, you see him in bed with his, I guess, ex. Which, again, to show his virility as a, as a man. That's the very first thing that you, you see. And then she ends up leaving him, I think, what, five months after he becomes a stable and marries his, his best friend or something like that? This is... You find out, essentially, the Will had a secret daughter who moves in with Lou to get to know her grandparents. And then Louisa ends up dating the ambulance driver that saves her life after she falls off a roof. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then she gets a new job through the nurse guy that was, like, hanging out with Will. And so she, the whole movie, or the whole book, becomes her trying to decide if she goes to the U.S., or if she stays with this able-bodied guy. Okay, nope, nope, JoJo. But this is, I, I will say, I will say, this is not anything new. Like, that's the problem, mm-hmm. is that this is not anything that she would cite Jane Austen as an influence. Oh my god, I can't read her <laughs> Wikipedia. But I, this is nothing new, you know? I, I write about these movies a lot. And, and again, if you watch Me Before You, and you see the upside, there are a lot of parallels to, to both movies. That's just, until there are disabled people writing and directing these movies... I mean, I would say even consulting on some of these movies would be a start. This is what we continue to get. But for me, the reason I really wanted to talk about this on the show was it starts with educating able-bodied people to notice that these are problems. You know, that these are things that are just elements of lazy writing. Like, if you complain about how they don't make movies for adults anymore or they make movies that are unintelligent, like, you have to confront these disability narratives which are some of the sloppily most sloppily written things ever because people are talking out their ass you know it's it's no different than green book you know you hear a white guy white italian man writing this story about you know an african-american but he's never had any experience and didn't even bother to talk to that person's family like you would be suspect about it, and you should do the same thing if you find out that some white chick in England wrote a book where she just watched something on television and thought, I'm going to write that guy's story. I've never interacted with anybody who's disabled, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know, this is why, you know, even though I, I did not like this film, I'm, I'm glad you picked this, and... I'm also, I'm glad that you do what you do, because even I admit there's times where I fall into that trap of taking something on face value or a certain film or narrative without actually thinking of the tropes. And I know it annoys me to no end when I when I see films about the black experience that clearly had no black people involved. As I said, there was, I, used, I like to often say with commercials, because I see it a lot on, on a daily basis with commercials, where you could tell there was not a person of color in the room at the time. And I feel that we need more films that actually are written and directed by people with disabilities and people like you 
who fight the good fight and write about it to educate us all. Because no matter how many films I've seen, there's still a huge blind spot I have when it comes to disability. And there, I can watch a film like this and go, well, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem right. But then, again, the little things, like how you pointed out with the short the short film about the assisted living housing. We talk a lot about representation, and I feel that's a aspect of cinema that a lot of people, and even a lot of us film writers, do not really dive that deep into and we really should it's it's really uncharted territory it's why i think a lot of people tend to gravitate towards what i write because i'm really the only one not just noticing the trope but naming them and and mm-hmm. point out you know if, if anybody reads my work I've, I've heard i've heard a couple people use the term able-bodied buffer which i've i've come up with which this movie has which is the able-bodied person who is lou acts as the buffer for the audience. She's the audience surrogate. I mean, I definitely would want to do preferably a better movie next time. Uh, Best Years of Our Lives is good. Coming Home would be a really great one to do at some point. The the one from the, was it 90s? Coming Home? From the, I think it's the 70s. Okay, no, I'm thinking of a different... Yeah, with Yolanda and um, John Voight. Oh, right, yes, okay. Sorry, I was thinking of a different one. Okay, yeah. Vietnam story, mm-hmm. but... And Vietnam had its fair share of stereotypes regarding disability narratives. And, and Becoming Home, I think, is a really interesting one because people actually did research on on the people that were affected. So so John Voight does a lot of little things in the movie that, that don't make up for the grand, you know, problems that it does have. But it, it's little minute things that I think most disabled people would notice that you wouldn't think they'd bother to include. It's an interesting movie. But yeah, this one's trash. <laughs> but I know it's trash when I suggest it. And you know what? I think that's a perfect note to end on. Kristen, where can people find you? I am all over, but you can find me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. If you want to listen to my other podcasts, Citizen Dame, Ticklish Business, they are both on Podbean, citizendame.podbean.com and ticklishbusiness.podbean.com. And they also are both on Spotify. Excellent. If you want to reach the show, you can reach us on Twitter at ChangingReelsAC, or if you want to reach me personally, I'm on Twitter at SmallMind. Please take a moment to rate and review the show, especially if you're on iTunes or Google Play, uh, especially you, all you folks in America. I know you're listening, but give us a, a rating. We need it. So thank you for listening. Remember, you can change the conversation on diversity in cinema one reel at a time.